Please turn with me in your Bibles to the 14th chapter of the Gospel of John. John chapter 14. This morning we will be looking at the second half of the chapter. I'll begin the reading in verse 15 and read through verse 31. This is God's inerrant word. Please give it your full attention. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you yet a little while, and the world will see me no more, but you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. In that day you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him. And manifest myself to him. Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus answered him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words, and the word that you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. These things I have spoken to you while I am still with you. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. You heard me say to you, I am going away and I will come to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced, because I am going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. And now I have told you before it takes place, so that when it does take place, you may believe. I will no longer talk much with you, for the ruler of this world is coming. He has no claim on me, but I do as the Father has commanded me, so that the world may know that I love the Father. Rise, let us go from here. Let's take a moment to pray. Father, this is your word. Your word is truth. But Lord, we are sinners. Our faith is weak. We see through the glass darkly. We ask that your Holy Holy Spirit would come upon me as I present your word, that I might not distort it in any way. And we ask that your Holy Spirit would come upon all of us, that our hearts might be softened, that our ears might be opened, that our eyes might be opened, that we might see and understand and embrace and apply the truth of your word, for it is truly our hope. It is the life-transforming power that we rely upon. Please speak to us this morning by your word and by your spirit. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. I am an orphan, probably not in the technical sense of the word, because I think Technically, you need to be a child in order to be an orphan, but I am without my parents in this world. I have been without them uh, for almost 20 years now, 
And uh, like an orphan, I miss my parents. There are things that parents bring into your life that it's hard to do without. And I remember when my parents died within a few years of each other, I felt like a big pillar had been knocked out from under my life, that there was a, a support there that was missing, that there wasn't that wise, unconditionally loving, accepting presence there that I could turn to at any moment. The fear of being an orphan is really an instinctual fear in us as, as people, as sinners. The fear of being an orphan is the fear of being abandoned, of being neglected, of being unprotected in this very dark and dangerous world. Well, if you can identify with that fear to any degree, then you can identify with the disciples. As we've been studying chapter 14 of John's gospel, we have seen that they were in a time of confusion and despair because even though Jesus has been teaching all along that he came to die, he came to go to the cross, they still, even in this late hour, even as he's about to go to the cross, have not come to grasp that, to understand it, and certainly not to understand the purpose of it. But as we've seen in recent weeks, they are beginning to deeply comprehend that he was leaving them. And we have, in all the questions they keep asking him during these last few hours, days and hours with Christ, what we're hearing in the background is this fear of being orphaned. Where are you going, Lord? You can't leave us. We've left everything in order to follow you. What will become of us once you're gone? To address that fear of being orphaned, this is what Jesus says Beginning in verse 16, he says, I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. I don't think we even begin to understand what Jesus is promising there. I think we need to spend our lives trying to more deeply understand the promise that Jesus gives there. He talks about a helper. Now, if you've been around a while, you may be used to the King James Version, you're probably used to another title there of comforter. And in many ways, we prefer that. I mean, comforter, we have kind of an emotional reaction to that word. That's, that's a powerful word. Helper is kind of bland. But there's a reason why the more modern translations have gone with the term helper to translate the original Greek that Jesus, that the words of Jesus are given in, it's because it's more accurate. Because comforter really is too narrow, especially in its modern English meaning. The word in Greek is a word you've probably even heard. It's been kind of transliterated into English. It's paraclete. And the word paraclete literally means one who is called alongside of someone in order to help. One who is called alongside of someone in order to help. Easy illustration would be you have an accident on the highway, somebody's badly hurt, you call 911, the EMTs come, they come alongside in order to help. That's a very easy to picture illustration of what paraclete can mean, just one small example of it. 
The word comforter, the reason we shy away from comforter is that in English, in the modern usage of the word, we tend to think of someone who just comes and puts their arm around us and tries to encourage us and make us feel better. And the problem is that's far too narrow to what the word paraclete means. It definitely does mean helper in a broader sense. But it's interesting, if you go back to the original Latin meaning of the word comfort, in Latin, the word com means with, and fort comes from fortis, which means to strengthen or to, to give courage to. And so you get somebody who comes alongside in order to fortify you, and I think that's a better illustration of what paraclete means. Sometimes translations use words here like counselor, and again, it's true, but true limit, too limited. When you think of counselor, you think of guidance counselor, or maybe a, a, a counselor in an in a office who's trying to help you get over your problems. You think of somebody passively sitting on the other side of the room in a chair and writing notes and giving you advice. That's certainly far too limiting to think about the role of the Holy Spirit. Another word that's used is advocate, and that's actually closer, I think, to the original meaning. Because advocate speaks of someone who comes alongside of you in order to speak to your defense against an accuser. And so the Holy Spirit certainly does that. And so you get the idea that the idea of being a paraclete or a helper is somebody who is not passive at all. It's a person who comes alongside of you to strengthen, to protect, to fortify, to enable. And that's what the helper means. You need all of those terms, really. The problem is not, no, they're all true, but not, no one of them gets at the full meaning of what a paraclete is. The spirit that Jesus refers to, the Holy Spirit, empowers us, he teaches us, he encourages us, he defends us, he protects us. He's our helper. But it's interesting that Jesus calls him another helper. I'm going to send to you another helper. And it's helpful, again, and sorry, I know some of you, you kind of your eyes glaze over when I start talking about original languages, but the, the Greek language is so much more precise than the English language. That's why we, we do that in preaching at times, is to show you some nuances of the meaning that the English really misses. And what's interesting in Greek, of the two primary words for another, there's two very distinct meanings to the, for the two main words that are used to, to tr- that we translate in English, another. One of them means another of a different kind. So, in, for instance, if I were to say to you, hey, I got another car, and what I did was actually trade in my little sports car and got a, one of those big SUVs, that's true, I got another car, but what I really did was got another car of a different kind. On the other hand, there's another Greek word that means another of the same kind. And what jumps to my mind when I think of that Greek word is my, we, the whole time I was growing up, from the time I was old enough to remember to the time I graduated, we always had an outside dog. We had an inside dog and an outside dog. The outside dog was Pepper. And Pepper was a black and white mutt. And we always had a Pepper outside, but it wasn't always the same dog. I don't know, I think it's because my dad didn't want to deal with the grief of a dog dying. He just quickly went out and got another mutt that looked the same as the old mutt and put him on the chain, and so we always had a pepper who always looked the same. So it was another of the same kind. Now I'm going to try to pull a very awkward segue here to talk about the Trinity. (laughs) 
Because what Jesus is saying is, I am sending you a paraclete, a helper of the same kind. One who is exactly like me. That's what he's saying here. That's why I don't want your hearts to be troubled. I am sending you a helper just like me. The Holy Spirit is not a force. He's not an energy. He's a person. The scriptures teach that God is one God in three persons. And God, the Holy Spirit, is equal in essence to the Son and to the Father. And so Jesus is saying to his disciples here, you're going to be better off. You're going to be better off because of the cross, which we'll get to in a moment. But just think about it. You're going to have a paraclete, a helper, an advocate, a counselor, a comforter, both in heaven and on earth. You're going to have a helper at the right hand of the Father, advocating for you, interceding for you, providing for you, protecting to you in the very presence of God the Father, and you will have an advocate, a helper by your side, with you, even in you, in a very real sense. I mean, think about it. Aren't you glad that after Jesus was raised from the dead and ascended to the right hand of the Father, that he didn't come back to earth and set up an office in Jerusalem and hire an office administrator to set up appointments so that we might possibly get a few minutes with him. He sent another helper just like him. A little later in the evening, Jesus would say to this to him over in chapter 16, verses 6 and 7, he says, Because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. So I want to take just a few minutes to draw out from what Jesus says in all these verses, to draw out how the Holy Spirit helps us. And I think it's really important in this day and age to get our focus on the main job description of the Holy Spirit. Because quite unfortunately, you talk about the Holy Spirit these days, it's kind of like, remember a couple weeks ago I talked about end times teaching? There's so many kooky end times teachings out there that we just tend to avoid the subject because it's just, there's a lot of disagreement and a lot of weird teachings and we just kind of say, well, let's just stay away from that topic. We do the same thing with the Holy Spirit. There's so many weird teachings about the Holy Spirit out there that we miss the center, the core, the main purpose, the job description that was given by Christ to the Spirit. So let's talk about, you know, what he does. I mean, usually when you hear the Holy Spirit mentioned, what people want to talk about are the miraculous gifts. Speaking in tongues, healing, words of knowledge. And I don't, I'm not going to take the time this morning to get into that whole debate about whether those miraculous gifts of the Spirit were tied to the time of the apostles and whether they've ceased or not. Ask me later, I'll give you my opinion on that, my interpretation of that. But one thing I think probably almost everybody here can agree on is that those miraculous gifts of the Spirit aren't the normal work of the Spirit. Those miraculous gifts are not what we should be expecting in our lives and in the church day in and day out as we live in this fallen world. 
Let me tell you what the normal work of the Spirit is. Jesus highlights three aspects of it here. Very important. First of all, the Spirit enables us to obey Christ. The Holy Spirit is given to us to enable us to obey Christ. Do you notice how in this passage, over and over again, he connects obedience with love to God the Father and love to God the Son? That obedience and love, by necessity, go together. In verse 21, he says, I mean, in verse 15, he begins the whole passage by saying, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. In verse 21, he says, whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father. Verse 23, he says, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my Father will love him. You see, we sometimes lose the purpose of sanctification. We talk about sanctification, which is the process of the Holy Spirit taking a blood-bought, born-again, saved sinner and slowly, surely over the course of his life, conforming him into the image of Christ, making that person, that sinner, more and more like Christ. And sometimes we get so task-oriented in that that we lose the purpose of it. The purpose is that we be in greater fellowship with the God who saved us. The reason that we need to be made perfect is that that's how we draw near to this God who redeemed us. Obedience is to be driven by love for God, not fear of man or the desire for self-glorification. Obedience that pleases God is obedience that is motivated by love for God. Translate that into a mother-child or a father-child relationship. I always told my children when they were growing up, I always said, listen, you are my child. You didn't earn that. You didn't work for it. It was a gift given to you at birth. You can't lose it. You cannot lose your status of being my child. But if you live in disobedience, you know, I'll say you, you, can, you're, you, could not, you cannot disobey your way out of the status of being my child. I don't care how much you rebel. I don't care how much you turn your back on me. I don't care how much you reject my authority. You're always my child. But you will not be in good fellowship with me while you're living in unrepentant sin. You want to be close to me? You need to trust me. You need to love me. You need to honor me as your parent. And you need to submit to my authority. And when you are in obedience, we will be close. And it's the same way with God our Father. That's what Jesus is getting at. You want to be close to me? You want to sense my presence in your life? You can't do it while living in unrepentant sin. You can't lose your status of being a child of God because you were given that as a gift by grace, but you can't have fellowship. You can't have that sweet intimacy with the Father while living in rebellion. Jesus says in verse 21, whoever has my commandments and keeps them loves me and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Did you catch that? You want to see Jesus? See, that's what the disciples are worried about. They've seen Jesus every day for the last three years. And now they're not going to see him with their physical eyes anymore. And he says, you want to see me? Keep my commandments. Love me and keep my commandments. And I will manifest myself to you. Do you remember Stephen? Acts chapter 7. 
stood boldly before the enemies of Christ and testified to the gospel, stood for the truth in spite of the fact that it was going to cost him his life. And as the stones rained down on him, as he was about to die for his relationship with Christ, remember what happened. The heavens opened up. And it says that he saw the heavens opened and the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Now that was a miraculous vision that I said is not to be expected in our normal daily experience as a disciple. But the essence of what that was is something that anybody who loves Christ, keeps his commandments, walks in fellowship with him, is that Christ promises, I will manifest myself to you. I will show myself to you. What a blessing. Which, if we're going to talk about obedience as being one of the primary works of the Holy Spirit in your life, then that implies an understanding of the word of Christ, which is the second work of the Holy Spirit that Jesus emphasizes here. The Spirit enables us to understand the word of Christ. Look at verses 25 and 26. These things, Jesus says to the disciples, I have spoken to you while I am still with you. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Those words about a supernatural ability to remember what Christ had taught them is crucial to our understanding what this book is all about. This promise was not given to you and me directly, not in any direct sense. This promise was given to those disciples in that room. He's saying to them, I am going to give you by the Holy Spirit, through the working of the Holy Spirit, a supernatural ability to remember what I have taught you so that they could inscripturate it, so that they could put it down in writing so that the church of Jesus Christ will always have the word of Christ. That's what he's promising. Not only would he enable them, they, they didn't have digital recorders. To, you know, there's, how would they know what Christ taught when they went years later to write it down? You'll hear skeptics and critics of the scripture say it all the time. You know how they did it? Because of the Holy Spirit, that's how they did it. The Holy Spirit enabled them to record Jesus' teachings without error so that the church would have them. And not only would they remember what he taught, but they would be able to give much more deep and profound understandings of what Jesus taught and particularly what he did on the cross and through his resurrection and to give greater revelation, even of Jesus says, of things to come. That's a work of the Holy Spirit. And praise God he did that because we have the fruit of that labor right here in the scriptures. In 2 Peter chapter 1, Peter, the apostle, says, For no prophecy of scripture was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Jesus had promised this, even go over one more chapter to chapter 16. Beginning to verse 12, I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. These apostles were given the special gift of the Holy Spirit to communicate to us the words of Christ so that we will have them until he comes again. But the Spirit's job didn't end when the 
last apostle wrote the last word to complete the New Testament. Because the rest of the scriptures go on to say that the Holy Spirit is not only given so that we have the words of Christ in the Old New Testament, but we also have, by the Spirit, those who hear those words, the ability to understand. Something that none of us would have without the Holy Spirit. In verse 17, he says, The Spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. Without the Holy Spirit, this would be gibberish to us. Without the Holy Spirit, this would be objectionable to us. Without the Holy Spirit, we'd be ripping it apart and, and ridiculing it like the rest of the world is. But because of the Holy Spirit, we see it and understand it and receive it as the word of Christ. Paul talks about this in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Listen to what he says. Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. And we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. When it comes to spiritual matters, faith must come before knowledge. And that faith is a gift and a working of the Holy Spirit in your heart. R.C. Sproul says this, he says, There is an inseparable relationship between your affection for Christ and your affection for the scriptures. There is an inseparable relationship between your affection for Christ and your affection for the scriptures. I love my Bible. I love my Bible. I've loved it from the first moment that the Lord, by his spirit, turned on the light so that I began to understand it. But I was kind of led astray by a well-meaning older believer when I, was a, when I was a new believer who said, oh, be careful. Be careful about loving your Bible because we don't want to be guilty of bibliolatry here. We don't want to make an idol out of a book. We don't want to worship a book. We worship the Lord. And I understand what they're trying to say in hindsight, but for heaven's sake, is that really a danger? Am I really going to put this book up on a pedestal and start bowing down before it? There was no danger of that, really. And what it did is it, I spent years wrestling with that, of how much I love the Word of God, but is that an inappropriate love, or is that idolatry somehow? And it took me a while to understand that I love the Word of God, I love the Word of Christ, because that's where I see Him. That's where I experience His presence. Jesus has revealed Himself to the church by the Spirit and the Word. When the Spirit and the Word are working together, you see the glory of Christ, the crucified Christ, the risen Christ, the reigning Christ. You see it through the Word and the Spirit manifesting His presence to you. And we talked last week about the desire to experience the presence of Christ. You want to experience the presence of Christ? Be in the Word all the time. You cannot go for days with out being in the word and expect to experience the presence of Christ in your life. You can't do it. You need to make time. You need to stop letting your earthly responsibilities, your job, your hobbies, your sports interests, your children's activities, your television watching. You've got to stop letting those things crowd out time in the word in your life because There is no other way to get there. 
There is no other way to experience the presence of Christ in your life except through the Spirit and the Word at work in you. Praise God that the Holy Spirit does that. That that's his second major responsibility, to sanctify us and turn us and transform us into the image of Christ and to do that through the experience of the power and the presence of Christ in his word. And that brings us to the third great work of the Spirit where Christ ends this passage. I love this. He ends up with the peace of Christ. The Spirit enables us to be at peace in Christ. Do you notice how chapter 14 begins and ends with the same exhortation? In verse 1, John, uh, Jesus says, Let not your hearts be troubled. And then in verse 27, he says, Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. We spend a lot of time trying to find peace from the world. That's, what, that's why we allow television watching and sports and career and friendships and material things. That's why we allow those things to crowd out our time in the word is because we're seeking peace from them. Most of you know I love music. I listen to music all day long. And I'll admit to you that I turn it into an idol because I seek peace from it. If those of you that are audiophiles, you know what I mean. When you're stressed out, when you're on edge, when you're upset about something, your first instinct is to turn on music because it calms you, it relaxes you. And I am guilty of doing that way too often, that when I should be looking to the word and the spirit for peace, the peace of Christ, I go to music to calm my nerves. But you know what? As soon as you turn the dial off, as soon as you turn the volume down, as soon as you turn the the iPod off, whatever it is, that peace goes away. Totally superficial, totally temporary. Jesus says, I'm, I don't give to you peace like the world gives. I give you my peace, an eternal peace. And this is a peace that's not superficial, it's not temporary, because it's based on something real, something objective, which is the peace that he won at the cross. Paul says in Romans 5, verses 9 and 10, Since therefore we have been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son, how much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life? If Christ died for your sins, you are reconciled to God. You have peace with God. God is no longer at war with you. God is no longer angry with you. God's wrath is taken away completely. You are at peace with God. That is objective. Christ has won it at the cross. It cannot be taken away. And that is the foundation for the experience of peace that Christ promises as well. The peace of Christ is the peace that the Holy Spirit imparts to us, the peace of Christ that he infuses into us because of what Christ has done on the cross. Because of the resurrection is true. It's an experiential peace. An existential peace. The peace that Paul says that surpasses all understandings and guards our hearts and minds while we face all the trials and difficulties of life in this fallen world. 
Have you ever watched a mature believer go through a severe trial? I mean, somebody you really look up to in the faith. You know that peace? That supernatural peace that they have as they endure the trial? That's a gift of the Holy Spirit. It's the work of the Holy Spirit. Because you know that you're secure in Christ. And that even the trials of this life are used by our Lord to make us stronger in the faith. And there is nothing greater in life than being stronger in faith. Jesus' first words when he met his disciples after his resurrection were this. Peace be with you. Next thing he said, receive the Holy Spirit. They go together. In verses 16 and 17, Jesus says, Another helper, I am sending you another helper to be with you forever. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. In verse 20, he says, In that day you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. In verse 23, we will make our home with you. That's the work of the Holy Spirit, to drive that understanding and awareness into your daily life so that you live in peace no matter what your circumstances are. That's the central promise of that covenant that Alex talked about. That covenant relationship that God established with us as sinners by his grace, the very core of that promise is, I will be your God, you will be my people, and I will dwell with you. And that is fulfilled in the helper, the the paraclete that Christ has sent. We already have the Father and the Son dwelling with us through the Holy Spirit. Emmanuel, God with us. One day it will be complete and perfect, but we already have it now. That's why Paul in Ephesians 1 says we were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. Some translators or interpreters talk about it being like a deposit. The Holy Spirit is a deposit. It's a guarantee that we will get the full installment later. We already have the presence of Christ that cannot be taken away. Jesus said, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. He has fulfilled that promise. He has never broken a promise, and he certainly hasn't broken that one. The presence of Christ is here. We experience the presence of Christ in the loving, trusting, submissive obedience that we render to him through the work of the Holy Spirit. The the grasping, understanding, and applying of the word of Christ through the work of the Holy Spirit. And the peace that his presence brings, which is, again, the work of the Holy Spirit. That's the Holy Spirit's main job description. That's what we need to be seeking and praying for every day. Let me close by reading to you a a short passage from this book by A.W. Pink, which he wrote about the Holy Spirit. Listen to what he said. This is in his introduction. He says, Oh, my readers, face the solemn fact that the greatest lack of all Christendom today is the absence of the Holy Spirit's power and blessing. Review the activities of the past 30 years. Millions of dollars have been freely devoted to the support of professed Christian enterprises. Bible institutes and schools have turned out trained workers by the thousands. Bible conferences have sprung up on every side like mushrooms. Countless booklets and tracts have been printed and circulated. Time and labor have been given given by an almost incalculable number of personal workers. And with what results? 
Has the standard of personal piety advanced? Are churches less worldly? Are their members more Christ-like in their daily walk? Is there more godliness in the home? Are the children more obedient and respectful? Is the Sabbath day being increasingly sanctified and kept holy? Has the standard of honesty in business been raised? Those blessed with any spiritual discernment can return but one answer to the above questions. In spite of all the huge sums of money that have been spent, in spite of all the labor that has been put forth, in spite of all the new workers that have been added to the old ones, the spirituality of Christendom is at a far lower ebb today than it was 30 years ago. Numbers of professing Christians have increased, fleshly activities have multiplied, but spiritual power has waned. Why? Because there is a grieved and quenched spirit in our midst. While his blessing is withheld, there can be no improvement. What is needed today is for the saints to get down on their faces before God, cry unto him in the name of Christ to so work again that what has grieved his Holy Spirit may be put away and the channel of blessing once more be opened. A.W. Pink wrote that in 1935. Has it gotten better or worse since then? We need revival. We need revival in the church of Jesus Christ. What that revival looks like is not a lot of miraculous happenings. What that revival looks like are people that get really seriously passionate about pursuing righteousness. People who are passionate about reading and understanding and applying the word of God. And people who are just filled with the peace of Christ, the power of the presence of Christ in their life. That's what a powerful, vibrant, life-transforming, world-transforming church looks like. That's what the work of the Holy Spirit looks like. We need to get on our faces and pray that the Lord will revive his church. Let's pray. Father, thank you that Christ has sent another helper just like him. Thank you that the Holy Spirit dwells by us, with us, within us. Thank you that we are not orphans. We will never be orphans. Father, may we be more diligent in spending time in prayer and time in the word, time seeking your presence and your peace. And may we be transformed as individual believers. May our congregation be transformed as a body of believers. May State College be transformed as the fruit of the Spirit are evident in the lives of your people. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.